So, Zhao, you maybe tell me first how you got into your field. In astronomy? Well, yeah. I grew up in an amateur astronomer uh, in my hometown in Beijing, China. Mm -hmm. And then I went to college. You can see stars in Beijing? Uh, 30 <laughs> some years ago, yes. Okay. You could actually see four or five manual stars there. Now you can see zero manual stars. Right. Maybe. Yep. And then went to college, majored in astronomy, and came to the U.S. to Princeton for grad school. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did you get interested in quasars? Uh, so when I was a student, when I was still in China, we started a, a small uh, project using a modest-sized telescope trying to do a um, survey using sort of many uh, color filters to basically mapping sort of the spectral energy distribution of many objects um, over a large field. And part of that goal was to find quasars. So as my undergrad, um, senior thesis, I started writing a code to try to figure out how, how to look for very high redshift, very distant quasars. Uh, and that, in the end, it turned out to become my thesis in Princeton later on. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got started. So let, maybe we should back off and talk a little bit about the history, because quasars have been around 50 years or so. Um, and they were, it was a pretty big surprise and a shock when they were discovered. Right. Um, so talk about, you know, how we even evolved any understanding of what they are. So, of course, quasars was discovered almost exactly 50 years ago by Martin Schmidt. Um, I mean, it came as when people look for objects that they could identify as radio sources, and then they look for uh, images in optical wavelengths and find these small blue dots. And when they look at the spectra of these things, uh, they couldn't figure out what's going on there, these broad emission features that didn't correspond to any particular element that people knew before. So it was Martin Schmidt who first figured out that these were highly shifted hydrogen lines that coming from hot hydrogen gas. Um, and the sh redshift of these lines indicate these things must be extraordinarily far. And combine that with these things actually are reasonably, I mean, bright by a sort of a actual galactic astronomy standard imply that they have enormous amount of energy going into s these things to power them. So it was a surprise, it was a mystery for a while that how you can have these very luminous objects in distant universe. Um, of course, they, they're sort of the thing that kick-started um, the distant universe studies because very soon after the first discovery of quasars, they can be pushed towards um, a few billion light years away, mm -hmm. uh, almost in, f in the first few years. Uh, oh, and, and nice aside, I remember talking to Jesse Greenstein at Caltech and, you know, he talked about having quasar spectra in his drawer and just <laughs> thinking, what are these radio stars made of elements that I don't understand? And right. basically, so Martin Schmidt had a, a nice little leap just to realize what was going on. That's right. So, and then after a few years, I guess people realized maybe the only, maybe after 10 years or so, the only realistic way of producing that amount of energy um, is actually through a lot of matter falling to very, very massive black holes. We're talking about millions or sometimes billions solar mass black holes. And when the matter falling to them, sort of the friction uh, that during this falling process of this highly high velocity gas is going to actually generate a huge amount of energy that order of magnitude more efficient than actually basically nuclear burning happening in the sun. But of course, that particular theory took a couple of decades for people to actually accept. 
and and, <coughs> and it's a useful aside on just how we, you know, use logic or how arguments to understand these situations. What what is it that just tells you that it can't be a great pileup of stars in the center of a galaxy since they have a lot of stars anyway? Because we're talking about a gravitational engine, something completely different. Right. Well, so one another interesting thing about the property of quasars is they are really really compact. They're really small. The angular size is very small. Nobody in sort of modern at least optical telescope or any telescope can really resolve what is going on in the center. And the other clue that people had quite early on was these things turn to be uh, varying since their their brightness is not a constant over time, mm -hmm. and they can vary to the scale of uh, years, months, days, or sometimes in certain wavelengths even hours. Um, this variability actually gives you a constraint on how big the system is, because basically the speed of light is the fastest way you can communicate. Therefore, if the thing is actually varying at a scale of a few hours, um, this thing cannot be much bigger or cannot be bigger than a few light hours across. Uh, that's that's our assumption. If so, it's very hard to dump stars or any other energy to a few light hour across, which basically means you can't put in um, the kind of energy that more than a hundred times the total energy is emitting from the Milky Way into the size of our solar system mm -hmm. without uh, the help of something as powerful as a supermassive black hole. And it's uh, to, you know, just a casual person wondering about this, it seems a little weird to have black holes, which are supposedly black, being these incredibly luminous objects that we can see all the way across the universe. How, how does that happen? Why, why are they so bright? Right. So it's not the black hole is emitting. It's actually it's the process of stuff that black hole is sucking into its it horizon, and before it just disappeared, from us, those uh, those sort of the gas or maybe individual stars, in the process of falling the black hole that is emitting this light. I um, mean, in from a sort of physics energy perspective, um, what the, the the balance is when you are falling into a very sort of a deep gravitational potential well, if you will, um, you are losing um, your you're losing gravitational potential energy at the same time you're sort of getting this energy out to the infinity. And after the physical process of that happened, how that happened is actually still not quite completely clear, except we think that the gas falling, like spiraling in to the horizon, the black hole, very str strongly high velocity and very, very high temperature, and actually some version of the sort of just the friction, just the rubbing the gas against each other during this process is actually going to heat the gas into high temperature and emitting emitting mm -hmm. a lot of light from it. But the truth be told is that the detailed process of this, especially when you get close enough to the black hole, how the energy get out is still quite a mystery. And people, uh, you know, I, uh, the theory, of course, the basis of the theory was very soon after the discovery, in mid-60s, people mm -hmm. had the supermassive black hole idea. But I, I think the astrophysics to simulate, say, what's going on is extremely yeah, difficult. It's still ongoing. So that's why for quite a long period of time, people were, not everybody, actually a, a good majority, minority of astronomers have doubt on that. And I think in the 70s, there were a series of debates and controversies about what these things, are these things really that far away as indicated by the redshift? 
or they gain their sort of uh, apparent receding velocity by some other means. So there were a series of debate and there were um, interesting back and forth about some evidence for or against uh, the sort of a cosmological nature of, of these quasars. Um, I think uh, over time, as people discovered sort of more of the astrophysical environment of these quasars, especially the fact how they live in very massive galaxies, and later on when people begin to actually discover uh, or show evidence of very massive black holes do live in galaxies, uh, slowly very few people, or probably at these days almost no people talk about, um, not exactly no, but very, very few people talk about the non-cosmological nature of quasars anymore, but it was a, a big debate in the 1970s. And then probably an important debate because the cosmological redshift <coughs> is at the foundation of cosmology, and yeah. if, that, if there are other mechanisms for redshift, then maybe we don't know other things as well. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, yeah go ahead. So, and, ma and maybe another little historical aside that, you know, quasars are very extreme objects, but even back well before they were discovered, we had hints that things, strange things were going on in the center of galaxies, right? Yes. So, I mean, quasars is just a, probably the most extreme and most powerful member of the population we generally call the active, active galaxies. And the beginning of, of study of active galaxies actually wait go all the way back to the era when Hubble was around. And so people already see some of sort of the poor cousins of, of these quasars, which are many times less luminous, many times less active than the full-blown quasars we see today. But some version of it is already, people know it from so-called so Seaford galaxies and other kind of active galaxies have been known for, for a long time. And radio astronomy, of course, found sources that were hard to understand in the 50s and so on. Yes. Um, and in fact, that's an interesting <coughs> aside too, because the first quasars also were radio sources, because that's how we figured out what they were. But it's turned out now we have a more balanced view of how the energy distribution mm -hmm. of a quasar is. So, what is the typical energy output of a quasar across the electromagnetic spectrum? So, quasars actually were the starting point of what I guess people like to call sort of multi wavelength astronomy. By, because quasar has energy emission all the way from the hardest, highest energy photons in gamma ray uh, to very long wavelength radio. So it sort of a, have a very broad emission, which is reflection of the kind of physical processes m uh, in many scales, in many kind of physical processes going on around the black hole in the center of the galaxy. But the fact most of the emission actually came from, came sort of in the broad range of ultraviolet, optical, to infrared. Mm -hmm. And that's where the sort of a active accretion and the active emission from the hot gas um, actually show up. But there's good amount of emission in X-ray as well. It turns out uh, that actually the original discovery of quasars uh, and radio wavelengths, of course, but uh, only a relative minority, maybe 10, 15 percent also quasars have very strong radio emission. They were called radio loud, um, which probably related to sort of a relativistic jet get injected from the central engine of the quasar. But the majority of 80, 90 percent of quasars actually are, do not have very significant radio emission at all. Mm -hmm. And of the, now that <coughs> we have the tools to look at quasars across the electromagnetic spectrum, since we're looking at this 
emission that comes from the vicinity of a black hole? Which, which are the kinds of study that get us the closest to the beast that tell us the most interesting things about the black hole and its immediate environment? So essentially the um, radiation of higher energy, roughly speaking, come from the more inner part of of the of this quasar black hole environment, so if you really want to study what is going on very close to black hole, um, many of them have to resort into study of X-rays, study of very high energy photons coming from these systems, and there are things that you can see sort of begin to show relativistic signatures um, that has something to do with black holes um, in in X-ray wavelengths, for example. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned millions and billions of solar masses. I mean, what are the, what's the biggest black hole? Also, just as a useful benchmark, how do we measure the mass? How do we even know what the mass of such an object is? So there are a number of ways of estimating mass of black holes in the center of galaxies. Um, but all of them are related to essentially looking at the motion of either stars or gas near the black hole, basically Newton using your Kepler's law to state that um, sort of the velocity and the radius is in combination of velocity and radius of these gas emitting um, will give you a mass. So, um, so you're close but not so close you have to use general relativity. That's right. You, you're, you're looking at things that you think that the gravitational force is dominated by the black hole already but you're not quite there that the general relativity in fact is important yet. Um, so one way to do that for more close-by galaxies is actually looking at, to, to look at orbits of stars or orbits of population of stars uh, near the black hole. And of course, the best example is to look for individual star motions near the center of our own galaxy, mm -hmm. which is actually the, the best determined black hole um, mass in the, in, among galaxies. And then when you look a little bit further, at least in the nearby universe, you can use motion of uh, stars near the black hole to measure their mass. When you look for quasars, these methods become very difficult because you don't have the kind of angular resolution to measure the radius. And you, people invent various kind of proxies of, say, using um, the motion of gas combined with sort of some kind of estimate of the size of black holes by looking at how the light varies, as we mentioned before, to measure mass of black holes in quasars, and they sort of give you a consistent result. Uh, and one, I think it's one reassuring thing, is the way that you um, measure the mass of black holes this way. And when you compare that to the theoretical predictions of what kind of energy this black hole by accreting gas can produce, mm -hmm. uh, these two numbers are sort of roughly consistent with each other. So that tells you sort of our physics is probably more or less right, although the detail, the just detailed astrophysics of how radiation come out of the black hole and what is what is the astrophysics environment around it is still there's still still a lot of uncertainties but overall picture is probably okay and just as you've <coughs> alluded to it what is the efficiency with which energy is created in a black hole so I mean to put it is um, we all know sort of the e equal to mc square basically that's the kind of um, energy you can generate from the rest mass um, of, uh, of, of, of a matter um, and for uh, for black hole accretion, you pretty you usually can convert about ten percent of the rest mass um, into into radiation. In sort of by comparison, when you are in the center of the sun, the uh, 
the nuclear fusion that convert from protons from hydrogen to helium give you 0.7 percent of mm -hmm. the rest energy. So that's right there is a factor of uh, 10 to 20 more efficient right. than even burning fuel, burning hydrogen in the, in the sun. Right. Yeah, <coughs> that, that's pretty impressive. Now, now you've alluded to a big issue in this whole field, which is uh, when people saw these extraordinary objects, you of course wonder, are they just extraordinary you know, galaxies where something peculiar has happened, or does this something like this happen to all galaxies? So maybe talk about how we un started to understand the role of black holes in general in galaxies. Right. So for quite a long period of time, I guess, the study of black holes and quasars and active galaxies and the study of the evolution of normal galaxies are sort of two, were two fields that somewhat related but not really very closely related or coupled together. I mean, that's an important cultural point because I grew up with this too. And, you know, when you have these different research communities with their own conferences, they don't actually talk to each that's other right. so well, much. Certainly that's what it takes until when I was a student in the 90s, or still sort of just black holes or quasars or just weird things going on in the center of the galaxy that may or may not have anything to do with the overall evolution of the galaxy because of because the, the, the area that sort of the environment that we're talking about that affecting quasar is probably rather small compared to the total volume um, of the galaxies overall. Uh, but then there was a very important discovery in, I guess, around year 2000 or so, um, in particular using the Hubble Space Telescope, people were able to begin to measure the, the mass of these black holes and detect um, black holes, not necessarily all active, not necessarily all like quasars, but at least there is a very big gravitational pull uh, in the center of galaxies. And the fact is that they, for all the, almost all the big galaxies at least they look at, they could always find a black hole in the middle. And more interestingly is that the mass of the black hole in these current days or mature galaxies um, is strongly correlated with the mass of the galaxy itself. So that tells you somehow uh, the growth of the black hole and the growth of the galaxy are sort of in lockstep. There, people begin to throw out the idea called co-evolution of galaxies and black holes, and um, and at the same time, there are a number of sort of theoretical difficulties in understanding galaxy uh, evolution uh, that could be solved by assuming black holes uh, during their creation process played a role in how to shape the formation and evolution of galaxies. So people begin to really link the quasar and active galaxy research and um, normal galaxy evolution research together and these days actually become a very big um, very big field of research is to understand what exactly is the quasar doing there, especially not only what exactly the quasar doing to sort of the, the black hole itself, but what's the secretion process, what is the mission coming from the black hole because it dumped a lot of energy in the environment, how can it shape uh, the, the physical condition of galaxies overall, especially be exactly because the amount of energy is emitting, um, maybe it actually uh, expels a lot of gas from, from, mm -hmm. from the galaxy and maybe it affects how the galaxy evolves, especially how the star formation process proceeds in the galaxies. So th I mean, this is a really Im important <coughs> shift and, and without oversimplifying it, so now people realize that the quasars you know, are just the examples of those galaxies with big black holes where it's on, it's right. in an on state. <coughs> and so what is it telling us about what 
the phase of the quasar evolution or you know what are quasars are they a tiny fraction of every gal mass of galaxies life or are they special in any way right so one way you can you can look at this is I mean first of all it seems like every galaxies we look at today um, in the local universe as I said as, as far as they're reasonably massive they always have a black hole in the middle so the question is how do you form them how did the black hole get there the best explanation of how this black hole get there is actually through this quasar phase. And you, there are actually statistical argument to say that that may actually be what, hap what is happening. So this sort of an indirect evidence to tell you that since there has to be a black, there is a black hole in the middle of a galaxy, it has to be active at some point in their life. And you can estimate what is a fraction of this, uh, this black hole have to be active, sort of a round number, maybe 1% or so, which mm -hmm. means that I mean, people have been arguing whether um, it was 1% of the galaxy are on in the sort of in the on phase, in the active phase all the time, or is each, ga is each galaxy has 1% of its lifetime having mm -hmm. an active quiz in the middle? And I think the sort of the consensus now is probably the latter one, which means every galaxy, every massive galaxy, at least through some period of their, their life, probably um, 5 to 10 billion years ago, would have gone through a short period of quasar phase, and, and that's how um, these uh, black holes gain their mass is through creating mm -hmm. in the quasar phase, and maybe that's also how the black hole evolution shape helped to shape the morphology and the history of the galaxy. And and alluding <coughs> back to the fact that these fields were different, I mean, this is a very important paradigm shift in our whole subject, really. Yes, indeed. And uh, so. Okay, so there's nothing special necessarily about quasar, but something people might wonder is, well, you've got this huge gravitational pit at the center of a galaxy. How can you starve it? How can you stop it from being a quasar? Why, why don't they shine more? So that's, again, tied to this overall how quasars and galaxies are in their sort of their host galaxies. Uh, their evolution are affecting each other and how they co-involve that picture. Uh, one idea is that maybe quasars through the, the sort of process we commonly call feedback, uh, that um, one way to put it is if your quasar is accreting a lot of gas, a lot of energy, a lot of material into into it, it's becoming very bright. And this bright, this, this energy coming out of the quasar is actually a lot, and that can expel the gas that is, that the quasar is actually, the black hole is actually trying to accrete. Mm -hmm. And when at some point, um, the quasar will be so bright that actually it's going to expel a lot of the gas. So basically it's going to cut off its own food source. Mm -hmm. uh, and through this kind of feedback process, how the accretion affects the subsequent um, evolution of the black hole is actually going to stop the black hole from growth. And the same energy to stop the black hole from growth maybe also stop the galaxy from growing much bigger than it, it is because it's going to expel a lot of the gas or heat a lot of the gas in the environment of the galaxy as well. I mean, the thing you're talking about it alludes to an interesting aspect of our subject that, again, to the outsiders, it seems a little interesting that, you know, we talk about these processes and evolution and things that play out over hundreds of millions or billions of years as if we could watch it happen mm -hmm. when, in fact, we have to sort of piece together story yeah. by snapshots. So, and does, does that, it's a reliable process I and mean, we can learn about these cosmic timescale processes by just surveys and snapshots, the things that we can do with our telescopes in our lifetimes? Well, unfortunately, that's, only, that's the only thing we have, I guess. 
um, we are getting, I guess we are getting better at it by uh, by serving one one key there is actually you in this snapshot you you try to find the same kind of objects over cosmic time you try mm -hmm. to find try to tr try to trace things together although you cannot see a movie of it you can sort of at least find the same kind of object at different cosmic epochs and see whether how they're related how the properties um, those sort of statistical properties and the astrophysical properties of individual objects involved with time for example you can you can trace the mass of the same the galaxy of the similar mass and see how they evolve, mm -hmm. or you can trace the sort of the same population of galaxies in terms of their numbers and see how things evolve over cosmic time as well. But of course, that drives you to I mean, sort of to where we started, which is to carry out surveys of quasars mm -hmm. and to make because one difficulty is, of course, when you go to distant past, when you go to high redshift, things can very faint from mm -hmm. our perspective. So you have to carry out very deep surveys at sort of cosmological distance, which mm -hmm. was not possible until quite recently. Right. So that's what I want to get to <coughs> now, of course, um, your your work, and, and especially Sloan. Maybe, maybe just talk for a little while about the Sloan survey, because it's a pretty extraordinary survey. People are amazed when they realize that how modest the size of that telescope was, all the things that well, happened. I think Sloan survey actually started uh, probably with some discussion of a number of <coughs> sort of pioneering astronomers in the I guess late 80s actually, I believe it started somewhere in Tucson when, when a few of these people, Jim Gunn, Don York, Rich Cron, a few of the astronomers in Princeton and Chicago began to meet and talk about talk about it. And that was also the time when CCD detectors actually became possible and people began to make big CCD cameras and to make, also begin to make sort of a spectrograph that instead of uh, can take light spectrum of one object, can take spectra of many objects at the same time. So they realized that it's a time to actually design a dedicated survey with a telescope. The only thing it does is to take digital images of the sky and to take um, deep spectra of many objects in the sky. And it took them another 10 years or took a, a couple hundred people another 10 years to, to realize this, this, this project, which is a dedicated, very wide field telescope, a two and a half meter telescope located at Apache Point Observatory, which is next to the Sunspot Solar Observatory. Um, in um, in uh, New Mexico, um, and the amazing thing at that time was the camera was so big, was uh, by modern standards maybe okay now, but uh, it sort of a, has a field of view of seven square degrees, mm -hmm. so it can take very wide field images, and this wide field images and digital wide field images and reasonably deep, and with good sort of software effort to measure the flux of all these things, actually allow you to study property of galaxies and in our case to actually efficiently select candidates of quasars based on the colors because there are a lot of stars on the sky a lot of sort of stellar looking objects in the sky most of them are just regular stars mm -hmm. but you want to study quasars you have to find them you cannot take spectra of every object it's too many mm -hmm. so the third of the thing that actually i was involved in starting as graduate student was to uh, uh, to figure out what is the clever algorithm you can use to use this color information to sort out which one is your regular star, which one has a likely, high likelihood to be a quasar. And then you turn around this, and then you feed this information to your spectrograph and to just take spectra of these objects. When the spectra come out, of course, you can see, if you see very strong emission lines, these mm -hmm. are the quasars. 
And this is a very <coughs> different, uh, I mean, people are maybe familiar with the Sloan survey for all the galaxies, hundreds <coughs> of thousands of galaxy ratios, but this was going along in parallel, right? right. The, these projects were all merged. Yeah, so quasars counts for about one-sixth or so of the total allocation of spectral fibers that uh, Sloan has. We remember the days when sort of the number of groups, people working with different aspects of galaxy, working with different quasars, sort of have this joint session of trying to figure out, trying to bargain of who get how many fibers that make sense. So the end, end, the, in the end, we sort of decided on this uh, distribution of the vast majority of them go to galaxies, map, sort of map out the three-dimensional structure of galaxies, and a reasonable number of fibers would go to study quasars. Um, and it, just to put a historical slant on it, I mean, it transformed the number of quasars. I mean, in catalogs prior to Sloan, there were, what, 10,000 or yeah, so? Yeah, about 10,000 quasars before Sloan. Now we're talking about, well, we passed 100,000 a few years ago. Now we're marching towards 200. We're passing 200,000 quasars already. So we're talking about 10-fold, 20-fold increase uh, mm -hmm. of the number of quasars we know. And not only that, of course, it's also not only the number, but there are two other aspects that are important. One is these quasars are studied, a survey that's discovered in a very uniform way. So they allow you to do, to ask the tough statistical questions without worrying about sort of whether mm -hmm. your selection is good or not. The other is because Sloan uh, images sort of are sensitive to redder wavelengths than people used to before, mm -hmm. that allow you to actually push the boundary of the most distant quasars to significantly higher redshift than people had before. So before Sloan was uh, the highest redshift was four point something, not quite five. Mm. And the highest redshift quasar as Sloan discovered was 6.4 or so. And of course now there are new surveys uh, that that utilize sort of a big infrared detector arrays mm -hmm. that the highest redshift now is a little bit above seven already, which corresponds to sort of less than one billion years after the Big mm -hmm. Bang. So let's let's talk about that because that, that's of course you know you're a big subject. What are the why is it important to push quasars back to these earlier times and and also why is it challenging to do? Why is it a hard project? So of course you want to find out when the first quasars, therefore when sort of the first generation of supermassive black holes form in the universe. That's one big reason. You just want to see the evolution. You want to see when the first thing came about. Um, and actually, and the difficulty there, of course, is Distant objects are faint, so that's one. And when you begin to look for things that getting close to the earliest generation, you know that sort of there is a build-up process. So these things, by definition, are rare. Mm -hmm. There are not many of them yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, the universe were not full of quasars in the beginning. Uh, the universe has a lot of quasars at redshift two or three. We're talking about redshift six or seven now. There are 30 to 100 times less quasars than before, so they are rare. So the second problem is, so they're faint, they're rare. That require you to have a survey that cover a lot of area because they're really rare, and also go to sort of sufficient depths. And that combination is difficult in NTSDSS. And also, because of the high redshift, so basically light from the quasar is pushing towards redder and redder wavelengths, uh, you need to have very red sensitive um, detection to, to find them. And that's also the thing that Sloan were able to do that couldn't do before. So all these three factors, the rare, they're being rare, they're being faint, mm -hmm. and they're being red, combined to make them very hard to find before. And Sloan was really the first project that could find a lot of these very high-redshift objects. 
And now, of course, at this point where it's redshift 7 or higher, they're almost not visible objects at all, and, mm -hmm. and infrared is a harder game than optical. That's right. So is, what are the prospects for, you know, what's, what is the limit of this work? Well, so there is a technical limit. There is an astrophysical limit. Uh, the technical limit is basically how deep and how wide you can go with your uh, infrared uh, survey. And it would took about 10 years for people to carry out sort of the first really deep wide-field infrared survey to find this first stretch of seven quasars. There are a number of projects using, again, dedicated telescopes in the infrared to try to do this kind of thing. One particular one is a four-meter telescope called VISTA um, in Chile that uh, built by a consortium of European uh, observatories. Um, and then the ultimate way actually to push this is actually to go to space because infrared is really, really hard to do on the ground because mm -hmm. of the, all the problem with the atmosphere. Um, both transparency-wise and uh, and the sky is much brighter, but in space you don't have uh, either of these issues. So there are plans, at least there is a plan approved by the European Space Agency to uh, to, to send a satellite, which most of the called, called Euclid, which most of the purpose is actually to do uh, to do a dark energy-related cosmology survey. But in the process of that survey, you have to take deep infrared imaging or a very large part of the sky. Mm -hmm. uh, that will allow to find distant quasars. Maybe if uh, NASA or ever put up, put up something similar to the W-first project, people have been talking about that, will go even deeper. So technically, there are things on the horizon. And, and, and just as <coughs> an aside on that, that's sort of how the field works now. I mean, both for Sloan, for Euclid, and, and for W-first, you have to merge your projects. When you're doing yep. these huge surveys, mm -hmm. you're usually serving multiple right. goals. Exactly. So, but then the, another interesting question in this game is astrophysically what is going on. Um, we're keeping on pushing towards higher and higher redshift, but it got to stop somewhere. Quasars have to form, I mean, quasars didn't, were not, didn't exist at the beginning of the Big Bang. They have to actually take quite a while to form the kind of objects that we see. And that's actually had been a ma major puzzle for this field overall, because we keep on finding quasars at higher and higher redshift. Although they get rarer, they don't look much different individually. And that was a puzzle. And they have heavy elements in their spectral exactly. features, almost so with the same abundance, or can, it, can the, that be measured? The, you can measure the chemical uh, elements by looking at the spectra carefully. They sort of have the similar abundance, which actually is more than the abundance of the element, heavy element in the sun. Hmm. So there have a lot of things going on. And these quasars are powered by sort of black holes. We can estimate their mass of still 10 to the 9 solar masses, billion solar mass black holes. It, it become very uncomfortable for a lot of theorists to figure out how to form them so efficiently. That's that's sort of tied related to what we talk about. We really don't quite understand how quasars grow yet. We certainly don't quite understand how quasars or these black holes started. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of the most standard theory of how black holes started and how fast they can grow. It's getting very difficult for you to use this theory to explain the existence of redshift six or now redshift seven quasars. So there have been a lot of theoretical work to people trying to come up with scenarios that may be only relevant in the early universe that can form very massive black holes in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. The problem is you can grow black holes very fast. Um, you can only grow it to sort of, you can double the mass of the black hole every 40 million years or so, mm -hmm. and there are just not a lot of 40 million years left when you talk about right. Shift 7. So this is, a, I mean, this is a fascinating part of the field that we have this exquisite information from redshift 1,000, 400,000 years after the Big Bang, mm -hmm. and then we 
we have this gap that we're trying to fill in the picture and the reionization maybe you could talk briefly about that sure. too so the, the quasars are this sort of critical piece of filling in that yep. that part of the story exactly so f figuring out how the first generation black will show up is, is extremely important to understand. Could they have been possible. without surrounding galaxies? I mean, did the black holes come there first? There's all kinds of theory going around. There could, be, there could be collapse of many stars together. There was a paper yesterday talking about it. There could be uh, something to do with a direct collapse of dark matter-related materials. People write papers about so-called dark stars. I'm not an expert on it, but uh, with fascinating mm -hmm. physics. Uh, the other thing you mentioned is reionization. So that's another thing that quasars were very useful for, is when you get a quasar compared to a galaxy, what it does is, is give you a very l bright light source. So in addition to look at quasars themselves to figure out what's going on about these quasars, you can also study what is lying between you and a quasar, especially the gas lying between you and the quasar, sort of quasar like a beacon, like a flashlight that lighting up the, the kind of diffused gas between the observer and mm -hmm. the quasar. And the farther you go with redshift, the further you can probe this kind of gas phase that you can otherwise, you're just impossible to probe because they don't emit any light. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at what this gas is doing to the quasar, especially in terms of absorbing light, sort of the primordial hydrogen, cold hydrogen gas. And that's related to a process with people called reionization, uh, which says that, of course, after the Big Bang, the universe become cold mm -hmm. uh, through a process we call recombination. Basically, the universe is cold, full of cold atomic gas. Mm -hmm. But when we, through the quasar observation we see at low redshift, we actually can tell um, the gas in the so-called intergalactic medium between galaxies um, are fairly hot. And the, the reason they are hot, diffuse gas was because things like quasars or galaxies emit a lot of photons. Mm -hmm. These photons heat up the universe at some redshift. So this reheating process, which reionization just means the universe gets ionized again, which is really a heating process. The reheating process is a signature of the first generation of galaxies and quasars were emerging in the universe. And, and an interesting other puzzle, because people had had trouble in the local universe finding where all the baryons were, yeah. and it, it's mm -hmm. quite easy to hide them in this form. That's right. Uh, so when that happened, what had been a long debate or mystery or long uncertainty, um, it could be uh, people sort of knew it, could be redshift of six or could be redshift of 30. Um, so these quasars will allow you to actually put interesting constraints. So one of the interesting discoveries that we had from the Sloan quasars was when we took very deep high signal noise, very deep spectra of these quasars, we begin to see a very rapid increase in the cold gas when you go to higher redshift, mm -hmm. which tells you you're probably zooming into that epoch when, uh, um, when the universe was just transforming from this cold atomic phase to this hot ionized phase. Mm -hmm. And so that's through a process, through a, it was actually a prediction that this thing had to happen at some point, um, was a prediction made in 1964 by Jim Gunn and Bruce Peterson, Jim Gunn, the same person who invented SDSS. Mm -hmm. um, and people have been looking for this kind of signature of absorption from the cold gas for almost four years until sort of the highest Sloan quasars were able to reveal it. And this is also connected, people have probably heard, you know, JWST is supposed to look for first light and astronomers are looking for first light. So th these are related episodes, right? Something, the first wave of stars yep. or black holes or whatever formed in yep. the universe. You can, look at, you can look at the light source from, uh, from looking at galaxies. You can look at uh, 
the black holes from looking at the first quasars, or you can look at what are these galaxies and black holes doing to the overall environment of, of the universe by looking at these uh, sort of absorption coming from the cold gas. Mm -hmm. All these three pieces will fit together, hopefully, with JWST, with music summary of even higher redshift quasars, and with other probes like looking at uh, sort of a, um, their radial ways of doing it by looking at cold gas emission itself. Uh, they are ways of looking at the impact of these objects on the cosmic microwave background. So there are sort of four or five different ways. Hopefully, in the next five to ten years, we'll come together to sort of review this, what we like to think is the last frontier, the last unknown mm -hmm. uh, episode in the, in the evolution of the universe. Right. Well, thanks, Xiaoyi. You've given us a great window onto an exciting field. Thank you.